0: Our bulletin: We have that our reading today is from Jude. Um, we had a little mistake, and then also when when I corrected the mistake and and for the notes for the notes that Dirk put in, in the bulletin, I I got the verse wrong, the starting verse wrong. The starting verse is John twenty eight. Not um, um, well, I did get it right. I did, I did get it right. It's John I guess I told Dirk right. I thought I had told him wrong last night, but yes, it's my my sermon notes. I have it wrong. But our, our reading today. Is not, uh, is not from the book of Jude, um, chapter 1. It is from, um, as, as on your outline notes, it's from John 18, verses 28 through 40. So would you turn with me there, please, as we read God's word together. It's John 18, verses 18, I mean, I'm sorry, verses 28 through the end of the chapter. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Holy Father in heaven, as we come to these verses of scripture today, these verses that we have heard so many times before and become so familiar with these events and these truths of your Son, Jesus. Let our hearts not grow callous. Let us not believe that there's not ultimate truth and, and, and ultimate hope that we can find as we go through your word, as, we, as it becomes more and more ingrained to our, our, our hearts and that your Spirit communicates it to us and that it strengthen us to have a renewed hope in life and in death. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his 1952 apologetical classic, Mere Christianity, after C.S. Lewis lays out a formidable defense for the existence of God and the truth of Christianity, he moves in the later half of that work to discuss some of the key virtues of the Christian life. Lewis goes, home, um, goes on to describe hope as one of these virtues virtues, describing hope as one of the essential virtues, stating that a continual looking to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of those things that a Christian is meant to do. However, as I have experienced of late, and I suspect that is, I suspect that is the same for many of you, it can be difficult in our current day and age to keep our minds focused on and longing for heaven. That hope for heaven can many times seem so distant as we spend our days in a world so marred by sin. And as Americans live in the 21st century, it's difficult not to notice the deep political and cultural divisions that have materialized within our society. And every outlet that communicates to us from our media establishment to our academic institutions, from the medical establishment to our political class, informs us that if we would only adopt the correct social or economic theories, or accept a different form of government, or base our decisions on favored scientific studies, that we would ultimately be able to achieve that long sought after dream of a more just, a more equitable, a more safe society. Some have even used the word utopia. We hear some say today, why hope for heaven? We possess the wisdom of this world. Listen to us and you can have security, peace, freedom from disease and poverty, freedom from inequality. We can build our own heaven here and now. Why hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? Lewis in his chapter on Hope goes on to write that most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things that would promise to give it to us, but they never quite keep their promise. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or first think of some foreign country, or take up a new subject that excites us, are longings which no marriage, no travel, or no learnings can ever satisfy. Lewis goes on to say, I am not speaking now, Of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or learned careers. I am speaking of the best possible ones. Remember, there was something we grasped at the first moment of longing, which just fades away into reality. And reflecting on such desire and such longing for satisfaction, the type which we are never able to grasp, which always just fades away into reality. C.S. Lewis is only capitulating to the wisdom of Solomon that we find in the New Testament. The son of King David writing in Ecclesiastic chapter 1, King of Israel, who enjoyed all the praise, success, and wealth that the world had to offer, wrote these timeless words for us, in such memorable words as vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by his toil under the sun? And later, writing, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. And there is nothing new under the sun. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all its vanity, striving after the wind. After hearing these wise words of Solomon, and coming to our passage today in the 18th chapter of John's Gospel, we might find little motivation for hope. Starting with John 18, we're entering into what has traditionally been referred to in historic Christianity as the parish passion narrative of Christ. This narrative we find in each of the four Gospels, and it gives an account of the betrayal, the suffering, and the crucifixion of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in witnessing these events and recalling these events here in verses 28 through 40, it would not have been hard for those who followed Jesus during this time to conclude that there was also very little reason for hope. In fact, it was quite a dark morning. The one whom they had come to trust as their promised Messiah had been betrayed by his disciple, he had been arrested. He had been accused of a capital crime, declared guilty by the Jewish authorities in a fake trial. He had been denied by his disciple Peter three times. Now he found himself bound and drugged before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. However, if we pay close attention to these interactions between the Jewish leaders, Pontius Pilate, Jesus, and the crowd, we can find that there's a significant amount to learn about Christian hope. And today, as we go through these verses, I want to look at hope from four different angles, from four different perspectives. First, I want to look at hope declared. Secondly, I want to look at hope doubted. Thirdly, I want to look at hope denied. And lastly, I want to look at hope predestined. As if the events leading up to our passage weren't disheartening enough. We start out by this reading by seeing the utter hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. In our opening verse, look at verse 28, we see that the Jewish authorities did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. Now think about that. Look at this. Look at these men, these leaders. They're turning over the most innocent man to ever walk the face of the earth to the Roman authorities to be put to death out of nothing more than envy and spite because they couldn't bear to look at his goodness. They were worried about how it would appear if they were defiled by entering into the governor's headquarters and had to miss the Passover meal. Before we go any further, I want to stop for a moment. And it's important to gain an understanding of where Purchase Pilate found himself, the position he found himself in. As we know from the New Testament and from other historical sources, Pontius Pilate was a Roman governor appointed by the emperor Tiberius of the province of Judea. Pilate served in this position for about 11 years, from 26 AD to 37 AD. Now it's important to note that if we look at the terms of the other Roman governors that served Judea during this time of Roman occupation, that the average term was about three or four years. Pilate had been there for 11 Combine that with the fact that Judea would not have been a, a very prestigious assignment. It was just some backwater in the Roman Empire. It was not a center of influence like Alexandria or Corinth, or, or, or Corinth would have been. When we combine these things, we can start to see that Pilate's political clear career wasn't exactly promising. And if there was one thing... That could have done more damage to his waning political prospects. It was for him to allow this Jewish mob to create disorder among the people of Jerusalem. Because if there is one thing that Rome demanded from its subjects, it was order. And remember, all of this is taking place during preparations for the Passover. This is a time in Jerusalem when the city would have been filled with Jews from the surrounding community, crowded. It would have been like a tinderbox waiting for a spark. And as we look at Pilate, we see that he really has no interest or no motive to punish Jesus. In fact, he may very well have had some degree of reluctance to. Remember, it's not recorded in John, but if we look back at Matthew 27, remember Pilate's wife's dream? What did she tell him? She she told Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. We also see here in verse 31, Pilate tells the Jewish leaders, take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. He has no interest in punishing Jesus. However, because the Jewish leaders feared the following that Jesus had gathered, they passed the buck back to Pilate by hiding behind Roman law, saying it is not lawful for us to put him to death. It's kind of interesting how they weren't always so obedient to Roman law, these leaders. One can only recall the stoning of Stephan in Acts chapter 7. So, Pilate questions Jesus with the accusation that the chief priests had brought against him. Are you the king of the Jews? And that brings us to our first point. Hope declared. The answer that Jesus gives is at the same time both immensely practical and immensely comforting for believers today. My kingdom is not of this world. The practicality comes in that Jesus confirms that he is in fact the king. But he is not the sort of the king that the Jews would have Pilate believe him to be. He is not the sort of king that presents any kind of threat to Pilate's authority. He's no threat to the Roman political order. As John Calvin writes in his commentary on the Gospel of John, for Jesus declares that there is no disagreement between his kingdom and political government or order, as if he had said, I am falsely accused, as if... I had attempted to produce a disturbance or to make a revolution in public affairs. I have preached about the kingdom of God. That is spiritual, and therefore, you have no right to suspect me of aspiring to a kingly power. Well, we certainly see the truth and the practicality in this defense made by our Lord to the Roman governor. We're able as Christians to take great comfort in our Lord's declaration. For if the kingdom of Christ was of this world, it would be subject to change and decay. It would be built on the same false promises and the false hopes as all other earthly nations are. And declaring that his kingdom is not of this world, Jesus reveals to us that his kingdom is nothing like the kingdoms ruled by fallen man. It was nothing like that kingdom of Solomon that the king himself could now find no satisfaction in. It is unlike anything that we have ever experienced in our world. So marred. So broken by sin. It's helpful here to go back to one of C.S. Lewis's more popular quotes, a quote that's pulled from his chapter on hope. Lewis goes on to write: If I find myself, if I find within myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. You see, loved ones this kingdom being declared by Christ is not of this world but is of that other world that world for which you were made is a kingdom free from all the burdens of fallen humanity and a fallen creation a kingdom without corruption without political or cultural division a kingdom without ever rising crime rates overcrowded prisons flawed healthcare systems agenda driven media depravity in the public square a kingdom without suffering, a kingdom without sorrow. It is a kingdom without sin. And it is a kingdom for which we as Im- image bearers of the one true and living God remain, a kingdom where our truest longings and desires are abundantly met, a kingdom promised and guaranteed to all who hear his voice and run to Jesus Christ. Pilate acknowledges the possible weight of Jesus' statement by replying, so you are a king, to which Christ replies in verse 37, you say that I am a king for this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. It's important that we pause right here at the words of Jesus. We should pause here and we should ask ourselves, do you long to hear the voice of Jesus? Do you long to hear his truth? Do you hunger for his word? Do you long to come to church on Sunday and hear the message of the cross proclaimed, of Christ and him crucified? Do you desire to know more and more of all that Christ has taught and commanded? Or are you one of those to whom the words of Jesus falls flat? Do you prefer to hear how you might find what, is truth, what the truth is within yourself? Or by your own efforts? Do you prefer to rely on your own merited righteousness for comfort and happiness? Do you respond as Pilate responded? Which brings us to our second point hope doubted. Being both the final judge and jury in this inquisition of Jesus, Pilate, upon hearing the words of Christ, takes his inquiry in a whole different direction. He does not ask what is the truth as if he desired a specific answer. He does not inquire what is the truth here as if he wanted to gain more details, more accuracy about the case against Jesus. No, Pilate had no interest in finding out whether the Jewish leaders were making a valid claim against Christ. In fact, Pilate's smugness, his smug response gained him only gained him the admiration of 18th century existential German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. Not only is Nietzsche infamous for coining the declaration that God is dead, but he is also often considered the father of a worldview known as nihilism, which holds that there is no eternal truths, there is no eternal purpose, and that there are no ultimate meanings or significance in the universe. Here's what Nietzsche had to write about Pilate's response to our Lord. Writing, Nietzsche says, I must add that in the whole New Testament there appears but a solitary figure worthy of honor, Pilate, the Roman viceroy. To regard a Jewish entanglement seriously? (laughs) That was quite behind him, beyond him. One more Jew or less, what did it matter? The noble scorn of a Roman before whom the word truth was shamelessly mishandled. Enrich the New Testament with the only saying that has any value. And that is at once its criticism and its destruction. What is truth? You see, it was of no importance or relevance to Pilate, whether Jesus was guilty or innocent. Nor has Pilate all of a sudden become an epistemologist, hoping to write a bestseller on the meaning of truth, being that his political prospects are on the wane. As one writer notes, Pilate does not ask the question in order to set any conclusions about the accused on firmer ground. He does so to discredit the truth that enables Jesus' worshipers to hear him. What is the truth? It isn't a question. It's a dismissal. He doesn't expect an answer. He wants to impart his disdain to cast the dispute before him as a matter of the truth deserves nothing more but noble scorn. Unfortunately, this type of attack on the concept of eternal truth is all too familiar to the ears of believers today. Well, that may be true for you, but that's not true for me. You have to find your own truth within yourself, as one not-so-popular leader recently opined. The truth is subjective. The truth is a matter of perspective. The truth must be evaluated through different cultural lenses. There is no truth. The only reality in the world is power and power dynamics. It's interesting how all these newly minted postmodern thinkers coming out of our institutions today I think they have stumbled on some new way of thinking, some groundbreaking way of viewing the world and dismissing all of the beliefs and presuppositions that challenge them and make them uncomfortable. Satan has used this intellectual temptation against humans since he tempted our first parents in the garden. Is what God said really true? You will not surely die if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Pilate is not of the truth, therefore he has no true hope within him. He knows no such thing. He cannot listen to the words of Jesus, so he dismisses him with the same kind of intellectual snobbery that is so common today. As we heard from Solomon earlier, there is really nothing new under the sun. And that brings us to our third point, hope denied. Although Pilate was indifferent to whom exactly Jesus may or may not claim to be, He nevertheless finds that he is not guilty of any crime that would be punishable under Roman law. And we start to see that although Pilate has rejected the gospel of Christ, he was, as all who refuse to believe, whether they can admit it or not, moved by the efficacy of the words of God. By the efficacy of God's truth before him. Deep down, Pilate couldn't deny that truth. So he thinks of a way in which he might save the life of Jesus. And he recalls an old custom, by which every year during the Passover, the Roman governor would release free a criminal who had committed some hideous act, in order to commemorate the sparing of uh, God's sparing of the nation of Israel from death during the Passover. However, this was also a farce, for as John Calvin puts it, "There is nothing else <laughs> that, that, that this is nothing else than a shameful profanation of it." for Scripture declares that he who acquitted the guilty is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, um, Pilate, uh, Pilate reminds the crowd that he can release one prisoner, as was the custom, and he gives them a choice. The king of the Jews or Barabbas. Now, John's gospel tells us here that Barabbas was a robber. But we know from Luke's gospel that he was much more than that. He was an insurrectionist and a murderer. Barabbas was committed to freeing the Jewish nation from the yoke of the yeoman empire through the use of force, through open rebellion. He thought that he could bring about the kingdom of God by his own hand. Pontius Pilate assumed by offering to free Christ instead of such a heinous criminal as Barabbas, that he could soften the crowd's animosity towards our Lord. This crowd would have none of it. The same crowd who just six days earlier had laid their cloaks on the ground and palm branches on the ground along the path of Jesus as he rode into the city on a donkey, all the while declaring, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. That same crowd now cried out, Not this man, but Barabbas. Interesting to note the significance of the name Barabbas. Do you recall how Simon is called Simon Bar-Jonah, indicating that he was the son of Jonah? The bar in his name, meaning son of, well, that's the first part of Barabbas' name. We may also be familiar with the meaning of the second part of his name, Abbas meaning father, for we know that we refer to God as Abba Father. Barabbas, meaning, meant nothing other than son of the father. What Pilate is essentially offering the mob was, shall I free the true son of the father or the false son of the father? The crowd demanded, give us the false son. We cannot handle the true one. We choose a false hope. Because the consequence of choosing the true hope is more than we can bear. For the one who offers true hope exposes us for who we really are. He shines a light far too bright for any of us to be able to hide behind. No. Give us Barabbas. As we look at this final action of the mob and as we come to terms with the depravity of the human heart and our propensity to cling to false hope when confronted with the very truth of the universe, it is difficult to see a reason for real eternal hope. To quote the 1990s alternative rock band, Offspring, it seems like heaven is so far away. And that brings us to our fourth And our final point, did you notice thus far that there was this one verse at the beginning of our passage that I never mentioned? It was one of those verses that are so easy to just skim over, sort of a side note to the main narrative. Look at verse 32. Right after the Jewish leaders had declared that it was not lawful for them to put Jesus to death so they could hide behind Roman law and get Pilate to do their dirty work. Verse 32 tells us this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show what kind of death that he would die. We see both in the Gospel of Luke and both in the Gospel of Matthew. And we can read in the Gospel of Matthew, verse 20, chapter 17. Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took his 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and he will be raised on the third day. Not only did Jesus predict exactly how this would happen during his ministry, but these events are foreshadowed for us throughout the Old Testament and the Old Covenant sacrificial system. If we look way back to Leviticus 16 on the Day of Atonement, when God dictates the sacrificial ritual to Moses, remember there are two goats, two goats in which lots are cast. And on the first goat, the goat to which the lot fell, is to be used as a sin offering and sacrificed before the temple. But the second goat, the live goat, the chief priest was to lay his hands on the head and confess over it all of the inequities of the people of Israel and all of their transgressions and all of their sin. And he was to put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. You see, this scapegoat was to be cast outside of the camp of Israel, cast outside, bearing the sins of the people, foreshadowing, foreshadowing the Christ being handed over to the nation of Israel, handed over by the nation of Israel, to the Roman Gentiles to be crucified outside of the city walls. You see, loved ones, the Jewish leaders, Judas Iscariot, Pontius Pilate, the Roman guards, the angry mom, as R.C. Sparrow puts it, were like putty in the hands of God carrying out his promise made all the way back in Genesis 3:15 when sin first entered into the world through our first parents that through the seed of the woman he would send one who would crush the head of the serpent freeing his people from the sin of from the, from the curse of sin and death and in the fullness of time he sent his son Jesus Christ born of a virgin walking and living among us a life of perfect obedience Fulfilling every letter of the law of God. Proclaiming the truth of who he was to all who would hear his voice. Now, standing before Pontius Pilate, declaring his rule over a kingdom that is not of this world. An everlasting kingdom. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom where the dwelling place of God is with man. And Every teardrop shall be wiped away from our eyes, and death shall be no more. neither there shall be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Most of us know how the remainder of John's gospel goes. Jesus is condemned to death by Pilate, death by Roman crucifixion. He's humiliated, He's beaten and he's executed on a cross outside of the city walls. However, his shed blood on that cross was shed to cover and to make atonement for all of the sins of all who would believe in him. And not only that, but that life of perfect righteousness that he lived is accredited to us, making us perfectly justified before the Father so that we can enter into his presence and to his guaranteed everlasting Kingdom. And if you are here today and you have heard the words of Christ and you have put your faith and trust in his finished work, well, take comfort, Christian. Because hope in the promised kingdom is not just wishful thinking. It's not a false or waning or slim hope. It's a promised hope that is secured and sealed by the blood of our Savior. Jesus Christ. In closing, as, as anyone who has sat through my Sunday school classes or have heard me preach on um, previous occasions, you might know that I usually don't save a lot of time for application. And I usually pr- believe that the proclaimed gospel applies itself. However, there's one thing I would like to leave you with today, now that you've heard this message of Christ, that you've heard this gospel of Christ one point of application alone. Having heard this, this week, go forth, love your neighbor, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.